I'm going to invite you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. book of Philemon is a church we've been walking through Philemon for about a month now. We have a few more weeks in it. I want to encourage you, the last Sunday that we're going to be talking about the book of Philemon, it's going to, um, it's going to kind of be a global uh, a sermon, kind of looking at the book as a whole and asking a very specific question, which is, um, does Philemon endorse slavery? This is an important question for Christians to wrestle with. Does the Bible endorse slavery? I'd invite you to uh, to be thinking about that the weeks ahead. I'd also encourage you to think about maybe if you have an unbeliever friend who um, has objections to the gospel, uh, that, they, that you think about inviting them that Sunday. That would be a great Sunday to invite someone who doesn't know the Lord um, to come and hear his word. Um, the book of Philemon is really predicated on this idea that we talked about in the book of Colossians, that we should forgive one another because we ourselves are forgiven. Um, that we should forgive one another because we ourselves are forgiven. And so because God has, in, in his infinite grace and mercy, has welcomed us into his family, he's forgiven us, we ought to forgive one another. And so um, the, it's important because Paul is writing on behalf of somebody who needs to be forgiven. Paul is writing this letter to a man named Philemon on the behalf of a man named Onesimus who needs to be forgiven, who needs to be reconciled. And so we saw two weeks ago that um, when Paul greets him, he greets him through the gospel. And then we saw last week that Paul prays, and Paul doesn't pray, if you remember, a really passive-aggressive prayer. Paul prays that he would come to know Christ, that he would have the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And Paul knows that without deeply knowing, without deeply knowing the gospel, we're never going to be transformed by it. And so Paul has prayed this prayer, and he he wants Philemon to come to a deep knowledge of Christ so that that he can encourage him to change. And we're going to see this week that he asks him to do something which is unusual for his day and age. It's, It's perhaps uncomfortable. Um, and yet it is something that is important. So, starting in Philemon, verse 8, and we'll go down through verse 16. It says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this perhaps is why he was parted for you, uh, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more, both, uh, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, would you open up your word to us? Would you help us to see it, to know it, to love it, to cherish it, to be transformed by it, to be warmed by it? that we ourselves might put it in practice in our own lives. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Um, when I was in college, I had 
a friend group, um, a, a, a herd or a pod, whatever you want to call college boys, had this uh, this gathering of, of guys. And um, as happens at a Christian college, um, we kind of all started pairing off and finding uh, lifelong mates. That's why they call it the Moody Bridal Institute. And so... Um, uh, without getting into all of the details, I had two friends, both of whom um, found the women they would end up marrying one day. And um, just as a result of uh, some of these different relationships, there was kind of a rift that happened between these two people. And there was a, a rift that happened between uh, these two dear friends of mine, both of whom I'm still in contact with, both of whom I still, still love. And, um, and yet this rift that opened up between them um, kind of opened up a rift in, in, in our friend group, and there was kind of this uh, this kind of sense of brokenness in, in this this group of ref- friends that we had in college. And you know, when you're in college, you think these people are going to be your best friends forever, and then you you see, and there's kind of this urge, like, do you want to take sides? What is going on here? Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Maybe you're in a family where there's a rift in the family. Maybe somebody has, uh, something has come out into the open. Maybe somebody said something to one another and it just has created this conflict and there's kind of this tension. You want there to be renewal. You want there to be restoration or maybe you're in a co-work, uh, maybe you're in a working environment where you have different people who are sniping at each other and different people who are accusing one another and you feel the, the tension and the temperature of the, uh, of the relationships in that room has gotten hot, Uh, or maybe there's another situation in your life, maybe you are one of the people in this relationship where there's this conflict and this hostility, and maybe you want to know, can things ever be restored? Can things ever go back to the way that they were? Can this broken thing ever be made new? And Paul feels that tension because he loves Philemon and and he loves Onesimus, and there's this long-standing conflict between these two, as we'll get into today. And really, Paul is writing to try to do everything that he can, that this broken relationship between these two people can be made new and can be restored. And so I believe that this passage in Philemon is immensely practical. It's immensely important for us as Christians, and it is packed with hope. It's packed with hope. And so what, what we want to do today is we want to talk about Onesimus's restoration, his restoration. We want to talk about his transformation. And we want to talk about his usefulness. I tried to find a three rhyming words, but sorry, I'm not Baptist enough. Restoration, <laughs> transformation, uh, and usefulness. His restoration, his transformation, and his usefulness. I, I want to start in verse, in verse um, 8 or nine, sorry, Paul identifies himself as an old man and a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He he says down in verse 13 that he is imprisoned for the gospel. So the apostle Paul um, was radically changed when he met Jesus of Nazareth. He he was on his way to to actually persecute the church in, in Damascus, and Jesus, the ascended Lord, met him and revealed himself to him, and everything about Paul became an about-face. Everything about Paul was changed and transformed. And so Paul, from that time forward, was called to the ministry of preaching the same gospel that he used to persecute. 
The same good news that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, that he is very God and very man, that everything about him, that everything that we mean when we talk about human is true of him, and everything that we mean when we talk about God is true of Christ. And so he comes down from heaven, and he's incarnate, and he lives a perfectly sinless life. He, he, he keeps the law perfectly, and he dies on our behalf on the cross at the hands of men for our sakes. He died in our place as our Savior. And Paul, Paul has been changed by this message that somebody would die for him. And that not only that he died, that he rose and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And, and this reality that, that nothing is the same after Christ has come and, and died and risen again. This reality has, has utterly gotten into Paul's soul and he can't ever see anything else the same way again. And so he spends his life starting churches and preaching this good news and discipling Christians and sharing the gospel. And Paul goes around and uh, he sees lives be transformed. All you have to do is read the book of Acts and you see all the ways that, that God has worked through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And yet for all the lives that are transformed, the Apostle Paul was confronted and he was persecuted for the sake of this good news. He was imprisoned. He was chained up and he was put in prison and he was shipped to Rome uh, to stand trial before Caesar as a Roman citizen. And while Paul is in prison, while he's imprisoned in Rome, and this is what he's referring to here, he meets Onesimus. He meets a man named Onesimus. And it seems like a really, quote unquote, chance gathering in the, or meeting. And the reason for that is this. Onesimus belonged to a man that Paul knew a man named Philemon. Onesimus was a slave. And we don't know all the details. We kind of got to infer a little bit based on what Paul says. It seems here, if you look down into verse, um, to verse 18, which we'll talk about more in detail next week, it says, seems here that Onesimus actually owed money to Philemon. It says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And so it seems like there's some kind of outstanding debt that Onesimus owes to Philemon. And so the, um, and so the slave Onesimus has this debt. And probably what has happened is in the ancient world, they would actually entrust slaves with the owner's money if they were a trustworthy slave. And so Philemon uh, entrusted Onesimus. Philemon's a Christian. He, he, he trusts him. He assumes the best about him. And Onesimus, either through incompetence or more likely, he, he took the money and ran and lost the money. He squandered the money. And Onesimus uh, is found out. And so he flees from Philemon. And again, by chance, he, he, he finds his way to Rome and, and the Apostle Paul meets him. We see that this separation between Onesimus and Philemon was a painful one. If you look in verse 15, it says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you. That word for parted is a very intense word. Sometimes that word means divorce. There's been a relational breakdown between Philemon and Onesimus, that there's been this fracturing of relationship. And Onesimus has fled to, fled to Rome, and by God's good, kind providence... He comes into contact with Paul. We know that Paul is on house arrest, so he can still entertain visitors. You can see that for yourself in Acts 28. And so Paul comes into contact with Onesimus, and through sharing the gospel with him, and we don't know how long it took, but we just know that through sharing the gospel with him and communicating with him, that Onesimus becomes a Christian. It says, 
I, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul used that language to describe people who he, he has uh, led to the Lord. And so Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. Onesimus repents. He's changed. He's transformed. And then Paul sends him back. This is very important. He sends him back to his owner. And the question is, a, a, a little bit, why? Paul clearly has great affection for him. If you look in verse 12, he says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And that's that Greek word that we've talked about a couple times, and I will bring it up whenever it's there. It's the, it, it's the Greek word splachna. It means, it's from which we get the English word spleen. It means very visceral affection and emotion. And, and so we see here that Paul is uh, he's sending back Onesimus, who is his very splagna, his heart, his affection, his, his guts. He's sending him back. And the question is, why would he send him back? Why would he send him back? By the moral calculus of our day, this would have been considered a foolish thing to do, to send a, a slave back to his owner. And, and actually, Paul would have, if he wanted, he would have had biblical justification for keeping Onesimus. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16, the, the Old Testament gives very clear instructions. If a runaway slave comes to you, you're not supposed to send them back. You're supposed to harbor them. It was an Old Testament. And so Paul could have, if he wanted to, he could have kept Onesimus with him. And that, biblically, he could have justified that quite easily. And Paul has authority. He says, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to. Paul certainly feels like he has authority to keep Onesimus with him. Certainly, feel, certainly seems like he has authority. And Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7.21 has instructed slaves to find freedom if they can. So <laughs> all these other places you see that Paul seems to, uh, seems to be acting almost out of character because he, here he is, he, he has gone on record saying that he wants slaves to be free and, and yet he sends Onesimus back to his owner Philemon. Why does he do this? Why would Paul send Onesimus, the slave, back to his owner? After all, his, his owner would have had the right to, to um, punish him, even by pain of death for what he's done. You realize Philemon could have put Onesimus to death for this. So why, why does Paul send Onesimus back? It just seems foolish to do. Let me give you, let me give you a number of reasons why I believe that Paul um, sends Onesimus back. Um, I think all of these are true, but, but I, I believe that there are, um, I believe that there's two or three of them that are particularly true. The first one is this. Paul is very clearly, he's writing to, he's writing to Philemon, and he writes, you, maybe some of you noticed this when we went through the first couple of verses, he actually writes to the whole church. <laughs> so Paul is a little bit putting Philemon on the spot here in front of everybody else. He's writing a personal letter that everyone else can see and everyone else can hear. He's saying, hey, hey Philemon, I, you know, there's a slave Onesimus. I really like you to, um, to set him free. And, and what is Paul going to do in front of the rest of the church? Is he going to say, say no? Well, or is, what is Philemon? He's not going to say no in the rest of the front of the church. Well, what he's doing, he's actually putting Philemon 
um, he's, he's holding him to account for, for what the Bible says about elders, that elders and pastors are an example. And so Paul, because Philemon is an elder of a church, he's a pastor of a church, Philemon wants, uh, Paul wants Philemon to set an example. There's a very intentional reason that he's doing this. He knows the rest of the church is going to look to Philemon to see how Philemon acts, to see how Philemon behaves, and they're going to follow suit. You also see in the letters of Paul in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Corinthians that Paul expects that his letters are going to be read in the church as if they are Scripture. So Paul knows that he's writing Scripture. It's very clear. He uses the same word to describe his words being read out loud that it's used to describe the, the books of Moses being read out loud. So Paul not only thinks that the rest of the church needs to hear about this, his instructions to Philemon, he also thinks that other churches... Other people down the road, they can benefit from this situation. So Paul is looking at the situation with Philemon and he's thinking, this is not the only time this issue is going to come up. This is not the only time in the church that this is going to be something to be solved. And so it would be better to, by instructing Philemon publicly, set an example not only for how Philemon should behave, but also for how the whole church should behave. It's very intentional that he does this. Um, a A third reason is, uh, Paul knows Philemon's character well enough to know that he will do what he's told. Uh, says in verse, um, it says in verse 21, confident of your obedience. It's one of these ideas that you, you don't start a fight unless you know that you can win it, right? So if Paul was really uncertain about how Philemon would behave, he maybe might not have done this. But let me give, all of those are true, but let me give two reasons which I think are particularly pertinent. Number one, because Paul loves Philemon. Paul loves Philemon. Philemon 1.9 says, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul could have commanded him. He could have ordered him. He could have demanded. He could have kept Onesimus to himself. He had the authority to. But Paul loves Philemon, and you don't, Command somebody that you love that way. Not in every circumstance. Paul wants to give Philemon dignity. He wants to, he, he, he wants to assume the best about him. Paul, Paul's not afraid to assert his authority if he needs to. All you've got to do is read the book of Galatians to see what we're talking about. Paul's happy to assert his authority if he needs to. But if he doesn't need to, why, why would he do it? Paul loves Philemon, yet for love's sake. And so because Paul wants Philemon to feel like he has respect, like he has dignity, because Paul wants Philemon to to feel like somebody who has inherent worth, Paul's not going to run over him. He's not going to command him. He's not going to demand this of him. And Paul also wants Philemon to know the joy of restoration. Paul... Paul believes that this whole conflict that has come about between these two people, who he loves both very dearly, Paul believes that God is not absent from this situation. Paul believes that God is at work, that God's providence is guiding this, and that God is not absent. And Paul believes that God's purpose in allowing this to happen is so that Philemon would have the joy of reconciliation. Look at verse 15. It says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, 
that you might have him back forever. Paul wants Philemon to experience the joy of restoration. For for Paul, it's more, it is infinitely more important to him than just the, the, the legal status of somebody before Caesar. Paul wants their relationship to be restored. He wants what is broken to be healed. He he wants what is fractured to be set right. He he wants there to be this sense of restoration. When a slave was freed in the first century, sometimes they would take that slave before a public official and the owner would write a a, a script of manumission. that he he, He would write him a certificate of freedom, essentially. But it didn't have to be that way. It could have been before a gathering of people that the slave was set free. And I, I, I think maybe Paul wants Philemon to set Onesimus free in front of the church. To make this a family celebration, a family gathering of, of celebrating the freedom of Onesimus. To say, like the father in the uh, parable of the prodigal son, this my son was dead, but now he is alive. Paul wants Philemon to experience the joy of restoration. He wants him to to see that and to feel it and to rejoice in it. And so Paul Paul has two reasons that we're going to see, two reasons that he goes, two ways that he goes about arguing for this restoration, this reconciliation. Two ways. And so the first I would say is this. He, He wants Philemon to understand that Onesimus has been transformed. He wants Philemon to understand that Onesimus, this slave, is no longer the same person. But that he's a new person. We can see this down in verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul says, I became his father. And that word is the, the word begat. It's the word of being born, born again. And, and Paul wants Philemon to understand that Onesimus has been born again. To be born again is that moment when you and I put our faith in Jesus, when we throw ourselves upon the rock of salvation, when we say, Jesus, take all of me, I want all of you. It is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul wants Philemon to understand that there is a new reality and that Onesimus is no longer the same person that he was, but that he has been changed and transformed, that he's been born again, that he is a new creature a new creation. And he gives us three, three things I think we can say that show this transformation. But first is that he says that he's both in the flesh and in the Lord. This little phrase, in the Lord or in Christ, you see is throughout the letters of the New Testament, especially the writings of the Apostle Paul and virtually every page of the Apostle Paul's writings, you see this phrase show up again and again, in Christ, in the Lord. We've read that in our responsive reading today, the, hope, the Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
It's this idea that we're united to Christ, that we're in Him. If you put your faith in Christ, that you're in Him, that you have this fellowship in, in, with Christ, that you're found in Him, in the, the words of Philippians, that you are in Him, that you've been baptized into Him, that you've risen with Him, that you've been seated with Him in the heavenly places. It's this deep fellowship and sharing between Christ and the believer that happens. And so Paul wants Philemon to understand that, that Onesimus has a new identity. He's now someone who's in the Lord. He's now someone who's, who's been born again. He's now someone who's regenerated. He's now someone who has been changed and transformed by the gospel. He, he is in the Lord. He also says that he is no more a bondservant, but a beloved brother. A beloved brother. And, and both of those words are important. Because if you have been here the last few weeks, you know that Paul uses both of those words to describe who? Philemon. In verse 1, he says, Philemon, our beloved, same word, fellow worker. And again, he says in verse 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. And we talked in the last few weeks how important it was for Paul that he looked at Philemon and he saw someone who's been adopted into the family, who God has shed his love on, who God has united to Christ and who's been restored to him by the blood of the cross. We talked over the last few weeks how we, we, when Paul looks at Philemon, he sees someone who's been brought into the family of God, who can call the father his father, and who can call the son his older brother. And then Paul turns around and says, yeah, the same thing is true for Onesimus. This reality that has happened, that you've been changed and transformed, that, that you've been born, the same thing is true of Onesimus. Just like you, he's been changed. Just like you, he's been adopted. Just like you, he's the beloved. Just like you, he has been brought home. Paul wants Philemon to understand that the same change that Philemon felt when he came into contact with Christ is true of Onesimus. He wants him to get that in his bones. We also see, I love verse 11, where the elders were talking about that this week, verse 11. Paul is so bold as to say, yeah, before Christ, B.C., formerly he was useless to you. I love that. He was used. Now, on the face of it, you've got to think about that because actually Philemon uh, knows that Onesimus was not useless. Otherwise, he wouldn't have trusted him with all that money, right? Philemon knows that Onesimus actually formerly wasn't totally useless. He actually was a pretty competent person. Otherwise, why would you bother trusting him with your money? You don't trust a, a, a useless person with your life savings. But he's talking about eternal matters. He's talking about the, the matters of salvation. He's saying when it, when it came to the Lord, when it comes to the things of the Lord, when it comes to the things of eternity, it's great that you have earthly wealth, but he wasn't much help to you. Formerly, he was useless, but now he's what? He's useful. He's someone who now has been changed. He's someone who is of benefit to you. That, that Onesimus is now someone who, by the power of the gospel, has been changed and transformed, who, who, has been, who has been totally redeemed, and therefore this person is no longer useless. They're useful. There's this transformation that has happened. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a second. What, what Paul wants Philemon to do is far deeper than giving him a piece of paper that says you're free now. What Paul wants Philemon to do is he wants to see that Onesimus is a new creature. 
He wants to see him as Christ does. He wants Onesimus to recognize that he's been changed and transformed, that he's been born again. I love how C.S. Lewis describes it in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to today may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Mortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We, we must play, but our merriment must be of the kind that, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption, and our charity must be a real and costly love. With deep feelings for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parries merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ the glorifier and the glorified glory himself is truly hidden. When you and I look at those who are in Christ, we ought to see those as Christ sees them. Or as Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Christians, when you and I look at one another, we need to look at each other as Christ looks at one another. As those who are found in him, as those who are united to Christ, as those who've been transformed by the redeeming power of the gospel. And Paul knows that if he can win that battle with Philemon, if he can get him to see that, that Onesimus is someone who's been changed and transformed, if he can get him to see him as his beloved brother, 
then inevitably it's going to change the way that they relate to one another. Inevitably, it's going to change the way that Philemon treats Onesimus. You cannot look at somebody who's been redeemed by the gospel, who's been adopted by God the Father, who's been reconciled through Christ, who's been justified by the blood. You can't look at that person and view them as something as worthless as a slave. When you and I see others as Christ sees them, when you and I be, look at one another as according to our, our status in Christ, there's this inevitable transformation of relationships that happens. And this is why where, where Paul is going with this. He's trying to, to get Philemon to see that there's something bigger at stake. There's something more eternal. There, there's something weightier at stake than, than, than somebody's legal status on a piece of paper. He's trying to get him to see that, that Onesimus has been changed and transformed by the gospel. But that is not the only argument that he uses. It's one argument, but it's not the only argument. He also argues that Onesimus is now useful. He's changed, he's been transformed, but he's also useful, which I think is interesting. As a a Roman slave owner, when Philemon received this letter, he would have known that if he releases Onesimus, that he would actually still retain a relationship with him as a superior to an inferior. In the Roman world, when a, when a slave owner released a slave, when he manumitted, he freed a slave, um, then there would be still this relationship between slave owner and former slave. It would be a patronage relationship. And so there'd be a change of relationship that Philemon would become known as the patron and Onesimus would become known as the client. That, that was normal for this to happen. And Paul wants, this is so interesting, Paul wants Philemon to leverage that relationship for the sake of the gospel. Look at, he says in verse 11, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. He said in verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. You catch that? That he is saying that if, by chance, Onesimus comes back to Paul, or if he stayed with Paul, that suddenly Philemon would be actually serving Paul through Onesimus. You see what Paul is doing? He's trying to get Philemon to leverage the relationship that he will now have with Onesimus for the sake of the gospel. Now, here's the question that I asked when I was studying this, and it took me probably way too long to realize what I think the answer is. Um, That seems like a loser proposition, doesn't it? I mean, what benefit does Philemon possibly get out out of sending Onesimus back to Paul to serve, right? So, okay, maybe you can talk Philemon into releasing the slave, but he would still have this relationship where he could get benefit out of, out of uh, Onesimus as his, as his patron uh, and as a, this client relationship. But Paul asks Philemon to send his client thousands of miles away over, over the ocean back to Rome to serve the Apostle Paul on behalf of Philemon, where there's no oversight, there's no day-to-day contact, it seems like Paul is asking Philemon 
to sacrifice this relationship for the good of the gospel? How does that make him useful? And that's the point. That's the logic of the kingdom. That to lose things for the sake of Christ is to gain them. To lose out on the earthly for the sake of the heavenly is gain. To to lose out on what you could demand here on earth to gain Christ in heaven is a trade that it shouldn't take you any time to figure out. It's worth it. And Paul's assuming that's going to make sense to Philemon. That to lose something on earth, to gain it in Christ, is worth it. That's the logic of the kingdom. I love the words of Jim Elliott, the, the, the missionary who was... Um, who eventually would become uh, martyred while spreading the gospel in Ecuador. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To give up something here on earth to gain something in eternity is a trade worth making. Paul says it this way in Philippians. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. To lose something on earth and to gain something in Christ and in eternity is no trade at all. Christians, if we have the world but we don't have Christ and then we don't have anything, but if we have Christ and we have nothing, we have everything. And Paul is assuming that that logic, that he now gets the opportunity to send Onesimus to serve for the gospel, is going to click. It's going to make sense. And he is confident that Philemon is going to obey. When you and I see others as Christ sees them, changes the way that we conduct ourselves towards them. It changes the relationship that we have with them for the good. So let me give you guys a hand, just a handful, a couple of applications to close up our time. One, I think we all need to ask ourselves, have I been born again? Have I been found in Christ? Have I put my faith in Christ? Have I thrown myself upon the rock of salvation? Have I said to Christ, Christ, take all of me and I want all of you? If you haven't, and this sermon, it seems a little bit confusing. I mean, who would want to make that trade? There's a reason for that. It's because it all starts from this fundamental place of being found in Christ, of being united to him. And maybe you're here today and maybe you've never 
maybe you've never put your faith in Christ and you've never trusted in him and you have never, maybe you've been here for the hundredth time or the first time this morning, you're now realizing you've never taken that step. I, I just want to tell you, you can do that even now, even in your seat. In fact, when people become members here at this church, one of the questions we ask them is, what's the gospel? And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, after service, I would encourage you to grab the closest member you can find and ask them to explain it to you. And I did you a favor. We asked them all to stand up a minute ago. So you should know who they are. Find, the, find someone and, and talk to them about this. I would love to, our elders would love to talk with you about what it looks like to put your faith in Christ. Secondly, the second application I would have is I think we all need to ask ourselves, have I been transformed by the gospel? In a way, those first two questions are the same because you, you can't be born again without being changed and transformed. You see, the Apostle Paul doesn't believe in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. The Apostle Paul would, would agree with what Bonhoeffer said when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you are in Christ, you will make that same trade that we've been talking about. You'll give up the world to get Christ. You'll give up the earthly to get eternity. That's what it means to be changed and transformed by the gospel of Christ. And if you've never taken that step, we want to encourage you to do that. Again, again, I would just encourage you to pull the closest member to you to ask them, what does it mean to be found in Christ? Third, if you have been changed and transformed by the gospel of Christ, you can't help but look at other people differently. It should change how we view other people. I can no longer view X as this person who just gets on my nerves. I mean, maybe they still get on your nerves, but the fundamental identity which they should have in your mind is as someone who is, who is a, a, as C.S. Lewis said, an eternal splendor or, or is a horror. Do you understand that? that? That we ought to see people as Christ sees them. Which means when we look at those who don't know the Lord, they ought to have our heartfelt compassion and sympathy. And we ought to pray for them and yearn that they would come to know Christ. We ought to share the gospel with them because life is short and eternity is long. And when we look at other Christians, even those who we have serious problems with, we also should still feel a deep affection for them because they have the same father that we do and they have the same savior that we do and they have the same spirit that we do. That when we look at other Christians, it should change how we, how we view them. Fourth, if you view somebody as transformed by the gospel of Christ, it should change your relationship with them should change your relationship with them. It should make you want to be at peace with them and yearn for restoration. And, and it should make you feel this affection for them. And it should make you hope the best and believe the best about them. If you have been changed and transformed by the gospel of Christ, then it should change your relationship. It, it should melt away bitterness and grudges and anger and resentment because Christ died once for all. And fifth, if there is a relationship in your life where there is this 
sense of breakdown and the temperature is hot and there's conflict and there's not this restoration that we've been talking about there's not this sense here's what i would say and i can't i don't know the future i don't know how that's going to unfold but what we've seen here in at least one of those situations is god's purpose in allowing this to come out in the open is so that they could have the joy of restoration And so you and I should never stop hoping and never stop praying and never stop pleading for what is broken to be made new, for what is fractured to be healed, for those who are far apart to be restored. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it bears on us. God, you know that writing this sermon is not an easy thing for me because there are relationships in my own life where it, this is hard for me to put into practice. God, I'm confident that I'm not the only one in this room that it is difficult to see others as you see them. And yet we trust that your spirit is in us and your spirit is pouring the love of Christ into our hearts. And so, Father, I pray for those who are here who who maybe this has been a hard thing to hear. God, would you help it to land in the right way? Would you help them to yearn and to plead and and to earnestly hope that there would be restoration, that there would be reconciliation? Father, maybe there's some here who they've heard the gospel a thousand times, or maybe this is the first time hearing it, and, and it's never clicked until now. It's never landed. It's never, you've maybe opened up their heart. You've maybe confronted them with the realness of this now. Father, we pray that you would earnestly finish that work that you've begun. That you give them the courage to ask for forgiveness. That you give them the boldness to, to put their faith in Christ. That you would help them to throw themselves upon the rock of salvation. And Father, I pray for all of us who are here that you would help all of us, like the Apostle Paul, to be agents of peace? Would you help all of us to be those who seek to reconcile those who are at conflict with one another? Father, we know that this side of eternity, what is broken won't always be made new, but we trust that your gospel is at work in us and through us. And we trust that we can get a foretaste of eternity today. So Father, we pray for all these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.